Hello listeners, this is your host Sadia Khan with Immigrantly. I'm thrilled to have you tuned in to this episode because we talk about some issues that have touched all of us from a young age. That is the frameworks and curriculums that shape our educational experience, how literacy is defined and practiced nowadays, and what it means to represent and recount history. Before I introduce our guest, I want to highlight an article that was published with Yes Magazine last month. It's called, Why is America Obsessed with Racial Trauma? Intriguing, right? I wrote this piece after reaching a tipping point where I truly felt I just needed to get out this heavy thought about American society's commodification of racial trauma. And to my encouraging surprise, I'm not alone in my observations of this issue. The article has been received with resounding support from listeners like you and organizations, including the Aspen Institute, who shared it as one of the five best ideas of the day. In short, thank you. Thank you for having my back. I have many percolating thoughts that I hope to get on paper. And if there are any issues you want immigrantly or me to discuss further, DM us and share your ideas and thoughts with us. Now about our fabulous guest today. You're going to hear from Matangi Subramanian. She is an award-winning writer of, get this, adult, young adult, and children's stories. Just as she runs the gambit in authorship, she's also a former policy analyst and public school teacher. Her book, Dear Mrs. Naidu, won the South Asia Book Award, and her most recent book is A People's History of Heaven, which stories five girls in the slum of Bangalore. Today, we talk about Matangi's experience in the field of education, how it has become politicized, how books are vehicles for sharing lived experiences, and what it means to foster a curiosity for reading. So let's get started. Thank you so much for coming on Immigrantly. I am very excited and I have a lot of questions for you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And can you tell me, Sadia, is that right? Yeah. Okay, great. And am I pronouncing your name right? You pronounced it perfectly and it was music to my ears. That <laughs> never happened. So thank you so much. It sounded so beautiful the way you said it. So I don't know if you've listened to Immigrantly, but we've had a lot of authors on our podcast quite a few, but very few children's books authors. We had Sadia Faruqi and one more person. That's about it. But I think it is so important and crucial to have these conversations, especially nowadays when schools and books have become bonds in the political game. Now, I look at you and you're an educator. You are a writer and you are influencing through your writing impressionable minds, right? 
Marthangi, why did you choose this field? Why did you start writing for a young audience? And what has your journey been like so far? I have always wanted to be a writer. So I started writing stories when I was five years old. And then right after college, I became a science teacher in high school. And I was surrounded by young voices. And I tend to write about what's around me. Mm. I mean, it took another 12, 13 years for me to get my first book published. Many of my books are actually only available in India because I lived there for about six years when my writing career was starting. But I think there's a couple of reasons why I gravitate towards children's writing. I think the educator in me and also the girl who grew up in the United States in the 80s and 90s at the beginning of this latest wave of immigration from South Asia really recognize how important it is for kids to see themselves in books. And I do have to say, you mentioned Sadia Faruqi. So my daughter is a huge fan of the Yasmin series, ah. which Faruqi wrote. And that's actually one of the series that I used when she was learning how to read. So that's one of the first sets of books that she read. And I think it's just also incredible to know that when you write for children, you might be the first thing they ever read. That's true. Yeah. Their first encounter with literacy. So I definitely have a very activist, educatory lens on writing for children. And that's part of the reason I'm drawn to it. But I also just feel like young characters are so interesting to write because they're discovering the world hmm. and they see all the absurdities that we as adults take for granted. So it's a really nice perspective to write from because it gives you a lot of freedom to explore social themes and political themes, which are the kinds of themes that I'm very interested in writing about. You're absolutely right. And when I think about children, the first thing that comes to my mind is their unabashed honesty. Talking about children's books, what do you think they are meant for? Are they supposed to be universal lessons? Should they inspire them? Should they teach them something? What are your thoughts? So in education, there's this beautiful theory about children's books where they talk about them being both mirrors and windows. I'm not sure if you've heard this before. And that's how I think about books for myself and also becoming a parent, how I think about them for my daughter. So when you think about a window, the idea of a book is a window. It introduces you to other people and places and time periods and ideas. And when you think of a mirror, it reflects your world back to you, right? Right. In perhaps different and interesting ways than you've seen it before. And I think that theory is helpful to me not only as a writer and an educator, but also as a reader. Because when I think about what draws me to books, I want books that are going to show me a new way to think or show me a new place I've never seen before or a new character I've never thought about before. And so I don't think it's just an educational and political thing. I also think that's what makes great writing is if you read a book and you're changed somehow. Nowadays, we are hearing a lot of debate happening around CRT, for instance, right? Mm. And whether that should be included in school curriculum or books. At least 25 states introduced legislation to limit how public school teachers can talk about issues of race and sexism in the classroom. From the political arena. Critical race theory is bigoted, it is a lie, and it is every bit as racist as the Klansmen in white sheets. To school board meetings. The battle over critical race theory continues to heat up. How do you reconcile with that? So I just want to preface this by saying that I read critical race theory in grad school in the early 2000s and used it in my dissertation. 
And it's very complicated. Hmm. I mean, it's a legal theory. So the idea that critical race theory is even in children's books, I really have never seen it. And I feel like it's a very strange thing to talk about. It's a legal theory about racist property, and I've never really seen it in a children's book. But that being said, I really think it's never too young to start talking to children about these things in developmentally appropriate ways. And one of the reasons I think that is that sometimes parents like me, we don't have a choice in these matters, right? Right. So my daughter, we lived in India when we adopted my daughter. And so she started preschool there. And at her preschool, this is in Delhi. She's very dark skinned. She's Alibasi. And she had a teacher who told her that she was Black. So she came home and she asked me at the age of two, am I black? That was the first conversation that we talked about race. And it wasn't like I got to choose when we had that conversation, right? That's a great point. Yeah. Not everybody has a choice in this matter. Exactly. And so I would have loved a picture book that I could pick up and talk to her about that. And there were certainly picture books about race and about Adibasi children and their history that I could use to talk to her about it. But when people are hesitant to bring up politics with young children, I think that often comes from a very privileged place because I think the majority of children in the world deal with politics from an extremely young age, which means that their parents have to as well. Hmm. So I think there's definitely developmentally appropriate ways to talk. The way I talk with my child now who's six about race is very different than the conversation I had with her when she was two, and I assume will be different than when she's a teenager. But I don't think we really have off-limit topics at our house. I want to talk about your recent book, which is A People's History of Heaven, which basically talks about five girls in the slum of Bangalore, India, if people don't know that. Now, while these characters overlap in class and community, there's a mixed set of religion, gender, and sexual identities represented. And I wonder why did you decide to write this story? Does it have anything to do with the fact that you have a daughter? And you give these girls agency, right? So when we think about kids, we think about vulnerability and weakness and sensitivity. And most of the time as parents or society, we tend to protect them. And you are in a way, I shouldn't say rewriting the script, but you're changing it a bit, right? So tell me about the book and why. So the book actually came out of a lot of research. So I moved to Bangalore in 2012 with my husband because I got a Fulbright fellowship. And the fellowship was funding to do an ethnographic study of India's Anganwadis, which are the early childhood care and education centers. India actually has the largest publicly funded free early childhood system in the world. And there's very little research done about it. Hmm. So because it was an ethnographic study, I was in these early childhood centers, mostly in slums around my house in Bangalore, although I did visit quite a few rural centers through various research projects and then also going home to Tamil Nadu to see my family. So I did about two and a half years of ethnographic study. During that time, I was also informally teaching a group of girls English who lived in a different slum and whose homes and stores had been destroyed. Edupura was destroyed in Bangalore while I was there, so it's been 10 years now. And so I was involved in that. And then after I left Bangalore, that was when I became a mother. So I wasn't a mother yet when I wrote the first draft. 
but I was when I got my editorial letter and one of the edits my editor gave me was to flesh out the mothers. And it was a really interesting project to do that while I was trying to figure out how to be a mother. Hmm. But it really makes me happy to hear you say it feels a little bit different because I didn't go into the project intending to write a novel. And then two novels came out of it. One is my middle grades book, Dear Mrs. Naidu, which was based on a lot of the right to education work I was doing at the time. And then the other was this book. And this book really came out of the fact that having been raised in the United States, I had this idea about gender and poverty in India and what it looked like. And being in these environments wasn't anything like what I had been told. I'm Brahmin. I'm not completely Brahmin, but I basically have Brahmin privilege. So that's how I'm read. And I didn't realize how much privilege that brought me until I went to India. Hmm. And then when I was in these slums, I started seeing these dynamics around caste and gender and class that I had never seen before. But I also saw incredible activism, incredible community. I saw these girls who were growing up far before their time, which was sad, but also really amazing. The knowledge that they held and strength that they had. And I also saw a lot of joy, which I think elite South Asian families, we don't really talk about the fact that you can be poor and be joyful. And literature just reinforced that. Like if you think about Slumdog Millionaire, the only girl is the love interest. Hello, Jamal. I'm guessing that isn't your brother. <laughs> this is? My name is Latika. Okay, Latika. So many of the books about slums don't feature a variety of characters and they don't feature women. So I wasn't really aware of what I was doing at the time. It was I was writing these stories to process what I was feeling and what I was seeing, which is what I've done my whole life. It just so happens that at that point in my career, I could get this published. You know, I am so glad that you brought up this and there is so much to unpack right off the bat. Yes, perceptions of gender identity in Eastern cultures, South Asian cultures filtered through Western lens are so different. I grew up in a metropolitan city in Pakistan, Lahore, shout out, <laughs> best city in the world. And I used to go to my father's village on a regular basis. And even now, when I visit Pakistan, I go to my dad's village because my parents decided to move back. And I kid you not, women and girls who I meet there, they have agency and they are happy and they're joyous and they are focused on day-to-day -day life. And there are no big goals, yet they are so content in many ways in their lives. And you're absolutely right. We don't see those conversations happening in the U.S., right? There's this very reductive one-dimensional lens. And this is a great segue into my next question. So as I was preparing for this interview, I listened to There She Goes. You were interviewed about your trip to Bangalore and your stay there. And I was going to actually ask you that you come from a privileged background. You are Brahman. And I wonder when you went there, you've already talked about how your perception changed. But as a writer, how difficult was that evolution? And was there a specific moment or incident where you were like, let me just take a pause and recalibrate? <laughs> how was that process like? I think I was very lucky that I moved there with my husband who grew up in India. So we met in New York. He was 25 when he came here. We moved back when he was 29. And then we moved here six years later. So he's not an American citizen. He spent the majority of his life in India. He's also Brahmin, but he understood caste in a way I didn't. 
So I think the first moment for me is when we were in Bangalore, we were looking for apartments. And we kept getting asked if we were vegetarian. And for me, growing up in the U.S., I mean, being vegetarian is a marginalized identity, particularly if you grow up in the Midwest in the 80s, as I did. People would hide meat in my sandwiches, and you could never find anything to eat. And I would go to birthday parties, and mothers would be like, just peel the pepperoni off the pizza, you know? So when people asked us, I was like, well, that's nice. They're asking... And finally, Santosh was like, they're trying to figure out if we're Brahmin, they're trying not to rent to Muslims. And that was the first moment when I was like, oh, I need to start noticing completely different things. And I think growing up as a person of color in the U.S. and using CRT in my dissertation, I was very attuned to race. So I think that helped me transfer that to caste. But it's interesting that you ask about writing because I have been writing my whole life. By the time we moved to India, I had pitched agents about three different times and never gotten any hits at all. And the first books I ever published were in India. And at first I was like, oh, my writing must have just gotten better. And then I realized, oh no, I have privilege. It's sort of like white writers here where it's easier to get in the room and it's easier to have conversations with editors because I speak their language because many of the editors I spoke to were expats from the UK or had gone to college in the United States. So there was this shared language of privilege. And then when I got my book deal here, which is A People's History of Heaven, it was partly because I had the time and space to think and write in India because I had the Fulbright Fellowship, right? Right. So my career, I don't know if it would have started if I hadn't moved back and experienced that privilege. That's such an interesting point, Martha and Gee. But here's my question. As humans, right, we do crave attention and certain degree of importance, right? And for a lot of first-generation immigrants and second-gen kids of immigrants who come from privilege from their countries of origin, they experience it sporadically when they go back. It happens to me when I go back to Lahore. How did it impact your personality when you experienced that privilege in India, not as a writer, but as a person? I think I realized just how much I had to learn and how far I had to go because I never thought of myself as a privileged person in the U.S. I knew I had gender privilege. I knew being heterosexual was a privilege. I was middle class, so I felt like I had some class privilege. But just getting any kind of recognition or any kind of respect had always felt like a struggle because I was a woman of color, right? I was paid less than most of my colleagues a lot of the time. Boundaries were harder to keep. There were just so much of my experience that was so different. And when I got to India, I experienced what it meant to really be at the top of the pecking order. I mean, I was still a woman and there's still a lot of gender dynamics, but it is very different. So I think I'm still working through what that means because it's applicable in the U.S. too. Equality Labs, which is a Dalit organization here in the U.S., has been doing a lot of coverage of the lawsuits in California about caste and about the way caste plays out through immigration. So it's not like it's not existent here. It's just that it doesn't play into everyday life the way it did in India. So for me, I think it made me very aware of how much research I had to do and how much I had to learn, which I'm still trying to do that. And it also made me kind of question a lot of my success because 
I felt like the white people I knew at my jobs who used to get promotions and things that I didn't get and who didn't see that there were other reasons beyond their qualifications. And maybe they were very qualified. You know, that's not really the issue. The issue is the systems that are in place. So it definitely made me question how much of my success in India, my professional success, was because of me and how much was because of the privileges that I carried. Did you feel guilty at all? Yeah. Incredibly guilty. And I think the moment that was really the hardest for me was, you know, my daughter is Adivasi and we adopted her. And when we were in the courtroom, the judge asked us if we were Brahmin. And it was because he wanted to, and I'm doing air quotes here, and it was the podcast, to make sure she'd be okay. And I really don't think I'm a better mother than her birth mother. I mean, who knows what her birth mother had to go through in order to make an adoption plan. But I definitely went through a few years of like, do I even deserve this child? Is this another caste privilege thing that's happening? And that's really complicated. And I sort of feel like adoptees should be leading that conversation. But it has definitely changed my parenting and changed the way I think about myself in the world. And I know I'm a work in progress. I have a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> How has it changed your parenting? You know, I talk to my daughter about caste in a way that my parents never did. And I buy books about it when we're in India. And in adoption, the adopted parents are the most powerful people in the system, right? Because there's the birth parents. In India, they don't get to choose who the adoptive parents are. There's the kid who never signed up for any of this in the first place. Yeah, so doing a lot of education for myself. And it's funny because I feel like with the race stuff my daughter encounters, I feel very prepared to deal with it because I've been dealing with it my whole life. But with things about caste, I really lean on my friends in India who know more about it and who have grown up with it. I want to expand this conversation a bit. I was browsing through your Twitter and I saw your pinned tweet, which is an example of how your daughter has faced racism. Can you share that incident with us, Matangi? And I'm curious to know what that conversation was like. And for listeners, you'll give us context so they'll understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, so this was three or four years ago now. So my daughter, I took her to a playground in my mother's neighborhood. We had just moved from India back to the United States. And we were staying with my mother while we were trying to figure out where we were gonna live. So it was also a very chaotic time. So I took my daughter to the playground and there were these two white girls who were there. And they told my daughter she couldn't play with them because she didn't have blonde hair. And there were parents there or caretakers and there were definitely adults associated with the children and they didn't say anything. So I intervened and I said to the kids, you can't do that. You can't stop people from playing on the playground because of how they look. And it was not completely successful. They did play with her a little bit, but we were walking home and my daughter and I had a conversation about what that meant and she was asking questions about it. And it's funny, it's kind of hard for me to remember now because some version of that has happened several times since that particular oh, wow. incident. Yeah, my daughter has faced racism a few times here in the US. In the school she's in now, she hasn't at all, which is touch point, which is great. But this also goes back to your original point. Some kids experience these things and they don't get to wait until they're the appropriate age right. to talk about them, right? And what is the appropriate age, right? In this case, if the other parents had spoken to their kids about diversity and how every person is equal and they should be treated as such, maybe they would not have had the same kind of interaction that they did with your daughter. Right. And white parents, they're not under pressure to do that, right? Yeah. The same way I'm sure I'm not under pressure to talk to my kid about lots of different things, but I've started 
talking to her as much as I can about gender and class and other things just so she understands the systems that are in place. It's not even about treating people equally in our conversation. Like, for example, I'm just thinking about this because I live in Denver and Nicole Hannah-Jones was just here. And so we read her picture book from the 1619 Project about the history of slavery. So we talked about how if you work for 200 years or 400 years and nobody pays you anything, you're not on equal footing with people who immigrated here from South Asia, right? But I think a little more open talking to kids and parents about these things because I'm an educator. So I've been developing materials about multiculturalism and how to talk to your kids about it and how to talk to parents about it. Like this is literally my job to do this. So I feel armed with language that I think many parents probably don't have, which is one of the reasons I do bring it up. It's interesting you mentioned Denver and I should have remembered because we lived in Denver for like seven, eight years. Oh, wow. And my kids, both my girls, now they're teenagers, but my older one went to kindergarten there. And I remember one day she came home and she was so sad. And I asked her what was going on. And she's like, why don't I have blonde hair and blue eyes like everybody else? Because people who have never been to Denver should know that it is white or whiteness on steroids. And it's not a very diverse place. I guess the demographic is pretty white. Very white. And I think that's one of the reasons why our kids feel left out or they don't feel like they are part of society because even visibly or physically people are very different. That's such a good point. I mean, living here is one of the reasons I try to talk to her about race a lot too. Because one of the things that they talk about lately in child development and child psychology is it's really important to talk to kids about these systems so that they don't internalize things that are happening to them, right? Right. So if you don't get into the fancy school or you don't get the job, it's actually because of a system. It's not because of you. It's because of racism or sexism. And that apparently is really good for kids psychologically. I didn't grow up with that. So I don't know, right. but I'm hoping it's going to work for her. Matangi, I'm going to pivot a little and talk about books in general. So many of us will agree that books should reflect the diversity of communities and cultures. And you and I have talked about this. They are, as you said in the beginning, a window into lived experiences of people both near and far from us, right? So it's important that books instill critical thinking in us. We must be intentional readers of information, right? Intentional consumers of information. I find the idea quite endearing because... A lot of people can read books and they do read books, but the way they read books matters a lot, right? But we are also seeing a lot of politicization. I mentioned that in the beginning around books, right? On both sides. So we see conservative voices critiquing different books, critiquing curriculum. What do you think must happen in the space, especially in our educational system with curriculum, schools, where we can bring diverse perspectives to our kids without all the gatekeeping that's happening right now? That is a great question. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that we need more diversity, not just in terms of writers, but also in terms of gatekeeping, hmm. which I think we're starting to see a huge shift in that, right? 
If you even think about the establishment of Kokila, which is a children's press, which is a diverse press, which has been putting out some amazing award-winning titles in the past probably four or five years. If you think about the rise of Black-owned presses and Black-run presses or imprints, right? So things like Amistad that are also coming out with wonderful titles. Mm. Because a lot of us can write as much as we want, but until there are major distribution platforms, our options are to self-publish, our options are not great in terms of distribution. And I say this having worked extensively with indie presses and really enjoying working with them. But the only book that people have really heard of that I've written is the one that came out, Real Algonquin, which actually was an indie press when I worked with them with a more established one. I think the gatekeeping is also on the school side too. I think there's a lot of fear around having hard conversations with kids. So it's not even just the very conservative voices on school boards that are afraid of these kinds of books. I think a lot of teachers don't feel equipped to talk about these kinds of topics. I mean, if you look at the teaching force, for example, I was just looking at the strategic plan here in Denver for the school system, and the school system is 60% Latinx, but the teaching force is 80% white. So teachers don't reflect the students. And so they're not in positions where they've had to talk to their two-year-old about race all the time, right? They're not in positions where they've had hard conversations like this before. And I haven't seen a measure of how many teachers are openly queer or how many teachers are openly trans, right? That data I don't think is being collected. So I think we need to treat our teachers better in general, pay them more, give them better training, give them more time and support. And I also think parents just really need to be involved in school systems and school boards. There has been a lot of activism happening since 2016, the dark day when Trump was elected. <laughs> but I'm not sure how many people are as actively involved in local politics. And local politics affects us often just as much, if not more, than national politics. Right. So you don't see people going to school board meetings where books are banned. Right. I mean, in some places you do. I think it's white parents going to these meetings. I think it's the diverse community yeah. that tries to stay away from anything controversial, right? I have heard so many instances of white parents going to school board and talking about how important it is not to have certain books as part of the curriculum because they don't want their kids to be exposed to that kind of narrative. What do you think? I think some of that is true, but I think one of the reasons it's true is because communities of color have bigger problems with schools than banning books, right? If you think of school closures, I often see when I worked in politics in New York City, also in California, and also here in Denver, when there's school closures, it's often black and brown communities. So if your choice is between going to the meeting that is banning a book and going to the meeting where your neighborhood school is going to be closed, right. you're going to go to the one where your neighborhood school is going to be closed. So that too is a privilege. Yeah. So when your problems are just about books, your schools are probably functioning fairly well. That's true. That makes a lot of sense. But on the flip side, we hear this term cancel culture a lot. We see a lot of right wing politicians, ideologues bring it up. Joe Biden and the radical left are now coming for our freedom of speech. It was one theme of opening night at the Republican convention, with speakers decrying a so-called cancel culture on the left that targets any but the most progressive views. Do you support the cancel culture? Do you think America is to blame? Now, the way I see it, <laughs> I want to preface it with, okay, this is my opinion. <laughs> People who are using these terms are the ones 
who've had the entire floor in the past. And now that their narratives are being challenged, they are losing it. But there are other people who think that freedom of choice, freedom of expression should apply to everyone and there should be fairness and inclusivity. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. LeVar Burton said it's not cancel culture, it's consequence culture. In terms of cancel culture, I think it's misnamed. That's a misnomer. I think we have a consequence culture and that consequences are finally encompassing everybody in the society, whereas they haven't been ever in this country. I think there are good signs that are happening in the culture right now. And I think it has everything to do with a new awareness on people who were simply unaware of the real nature of life in this country for people who have been othered since this nation began. And I really like that reinterpretation of it. It's uncomfortable to give up power. Right. And that is essentially what is happening right now. And people haven't realized how much power they've had until some of it, and it's not even being taken away necessarily. It's being challenged. It's being challenged. Like if I walk into a school board meeting, I'm still not gonna get the same respect that a white cis hetero man is going to. Right. You know, that system is firmly in place, white men. You're fine, you know? I think we need to teach kids to think critically because they're going to encounter these conservative viewpoints as they get older. I think our system of standardized testing is not the way to do that. I think that schools right now are under a lot of pressure for kids to do rote learning, to pass the tests and get the funding that they need. So there's not a lot of room for critical thinking in schools where that's a struggle, which are often schools with immigrant communities where kids don't speak English, right? Right. In black and brown communities where they're under-resourced and class sizes are huge. So I think that's important. But I think it's also important to think about what equity really means, right? So there's this cartoon that was going around a while ago, which I don't know if anyone besides teachers saw, but the difference between equality and equity was illustrated beautifully. So there was a brick wall and there were kids of three different heights and they all had the same size stool. So the tallest kid could look over the wall, but the shorter kids couldn't. And in equity, everybody got the size stool they needed to look over the wall. Right. I love it. So if your ancestors were enslaved for a hundred years, there's a lot more that needs to be done to create equity in your life than if you benefited from free labor or if you lived on land that you got for free because you displaced indigenous communities, right? So the idea that all viewpoints need to be heard, I don't agree with because first of all, I don't think that's equity. And second of all, there's a difference between me saying that I should have the right to choose what happens to my body and my uterus and you saying that I don't have the right to live in this country. If you are violating my human rights and my safety and my family's safety, I don't think you should have the right to say that. Absolutely. And this is such a critical point because there are a lot of people, especially on the conservative side, who are not just having debates. First of all, they are given these huge platforms to have monologues rather than active debates. And during those monologues, they are spewing lies and hatred. I guess presenting them as they are and the privileges that they accrue is an important caveat if conservative voices need bigger platforms than they already have. So for instance, if Steve Bannon gets a book deal, there should be a disclaimer saying Steve Bannon is a bigoted, xenophobic, Islamophobic asshole. And if you still want to read his book, here's his book. And that's important as well, right? Yeah. And I also think it's sort of different for 
adults to make those choices than for kids. Hmm. Right. Right. So if one of my neighbors wants to buy Steve Bannon's book, I'm probably not talking to them. I've probably created a world in which they are not putting me in danger. I mean, hopefully. Right? <laughs> I doubt that. Not be. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm, I'm speaking. I'm <laughs> being overly optimistically here. But I do think with kids, a good example is there's a picture book about George Washington a couple of years ago and his enslaved people and about how happy they were to work for him. Oh, wow. And that book got taken off the shelf, but why was it even on the shelf in the first place, right? I think when we're talking about kids especially, it is so damaging to be told from a young age that your life is worth less than someone else's life because of your sexuality, your gender, your race, that I really think with kids, the stakes are just so much higher. I want to circle back to adult books and literary space. So I have to be honest, I'm not completely sure what my opinion about this is. Hmm. I think what I do know is that I don't think it's fair that people like Steve Bannon or like the author of American Dirt get six-figure book deals and get a huge distribution when authors like me and my fellow writers of color who are writing from our experiences have a hard time getting deals, we don't get six-figure deals for debuts for the most part. I just feel like there's a lot of debate about whether these people should have platforms. And I don't know my opinion on that, but I do know that if they're getting platforms, the way that the structure works, that people who are on totally the opposite end have to struggle so hard to get a voice, that to me feels fundamentally unbalanced and unfair. And I'm so glad you brought up American Dirt because people may say, yeah, Steve Bannon is a right-wing asshole, right? But a lot of people don't view the author of American Dirt as such. We saw that book on Oprah's book club. We saw that book being recommended by Salma Hayek. So it's pretty much normalized in American literary discourse. It's okay. And it was celebrated. Now we are talking about books that on surface don't seem harmful, but they are. Right. And it's such a good point you're making because I feel like everybody is talking about it. I was talking to another mom at my daughter's school at Pickup and she was like, oh, we're reading American Dirt for our book club. And I was like, you're doing what? And she was like, yeah, it was an Oprah's book club pick. So those are the moments when I'm like, well, I live in this world of authors of color that are all supporting each other and trying to make change. But outside of our discourse, that isn't necessarily something that everybody knows. And one thing I often find myself talking to teachers and parents about through my work is how do you know when you choose these books, especially when you choose these books for your kids, right? So one of the first things I say is, I love the Yasmin series because Sadia Faruqi is from the same background as Yasmin. So the first thing you wanna check is whether the author is actually from the background that they're writing about. (laughs) And if they're not, then you better check their motivations and their research process. I mean, another great example of this is behind Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo, which got all kinds of accolades. It was a book about Islam in Mumbai and the politics. And I haven't been up on this in a while, but recently there have been rumors that the research process that Catherine Boo, who's a white woman, did was maybe not as rigorous as people thought originally. I actually really enjoyed the book when I read it, but I read it with the knowledge that a white woman wrote it. So it's going to be different than somebody, Marachi, who wrote it. So just keeping those in mind. I'm not a slum dweller. So I did a ton of research before I wrote my book. I'm not saying you shouldn't read a white woman's book who wrote about a slum because I was kind of a white woman in India (laughs) researching slums. But I did an ethnographic study. I did interviews and focus groups and read secondary research. So I did do a lot of research for my book. 
So being intentional about what you read, right? Looking at the author, as you said, is so important. What their motivation is. Why did they choose to write about something that is not part of their lived experience and how thoroughly researched it is. And even then, if you find it problematic, then don't read it. Right. right, And don't buy it. And don't buy it. Don't buy it. Some people are like, oh my gosh, I want to read this because I've heard so many things about it. I don't agree with it, but I'm buying it. But by buying it, you are contributing to that narrative. It's spread and helping the author <laughs> create something as problematic in future. Yeah. In the end, Matangi, as a children's book writer, as second gen kid of immigrants, I believe you were born and raised here. Yes. And also the wife and mother of immigrants. And wife and mother of an immigrant. How would you define America? Oh, wow. Well, you know, it was a hard decision to move back here from India. But I think there's something about America that is just home for me because I grew up here, as problematic as it is. But I think the thing that I really appreciate about America, especially having lived in India, which has its own political nightmare going on right now with Modi and a very conservative, hateful government, there is a lot of conversation here and there is a lot of hope and there is a lot of community. I feel in India, a lot of my brightest friends and most motivated friends felt very defeated by the system. Even journalists and friends like that, it was like, you can't work in the government to change the government. They felt like there were so few avenues for making change. And one thing I do appreciate about the United States is even having grown up as a person of color here. I've worked in policy. I've worked in government. I've worked as a public school teacher. I just feel there's a kind of hope and an openness to talking about hard things here that I don't see in India. I also don't see it in the UK. I have a lot of cousins in the UK. Yeah. I don't see it in Europe. I think that really makes me feel like I can stay here. Because I have a lot of criticisms of this country. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. What America offers in terms of healthy political debate, social debate, being able to have challenging conversations around difficult topics is a privilege in itself. A lot of countries, including Pakistan, India and others, don't afford you the luxury or the right to do that. Yes. And you're right, that's what I appreciate about America as well. And I'm glad you said that. I'm so grateful for the Black Lives Matter movement and indigenous movements because I feel like they've opened up so much space for people like me. I mean, even just the way I'm treated as an author now is so different than two years ago, is so different than five years ago. In the end, Madangi, if people were to buy your book, can they buy it from Amazon or is there a particular <laughs> bookstore that you want them to support? Okay, there's a bookstore in Denver called Matter, which I believe does online sales. So that's kind of my favorite bookstore in Denver. I also really love Books, Inc. in California. I moved to Denver during the pandemic, so I'm going to say this as a disclaimer. So I'm only now figuring out bookstores, so I don't have a favorite here yet. But I have had a really good experience with Matter. And then Books, Inc. in California was my go-to. Wonderful. This was so good. Thank you for coming on Immigrantly and for this robust conversation. Hopefully you will write a lot more books that kids will enjoy and learn from. Thank you. Thank you. This was really, really lovely. Thank you, Sadia, so much. What a fun conversation. I enjoyed every bit of it. 
if you want to support authors of color go buy their books support them share their work that's how they grow this episode was written by Yudi Liu produced by me Sadia Khan and our editor is Manny Simone until next time take care Thank you.